Well, good morning. Thank you, uh, Keith. Privileged to be with you here this day. Uh, Diane and I enjoy the journey of walking uh, with different congregations uh, throughout British Columbia, and uh, certainly the role in these last two years has allowed us to do lots of that, just to sort of pop in and see what God's up to uh, in, in, uh, in our faith communities. Great to be with you here this morning. I also want to thank you for uh, the generosity with which you have given Pastor Brad a sabbatical. Uh, some of you may say, well, how come he gets one? I don't, right? I mean, why is it that some of us get sabbaticals? I don't know the answer to that question, but I am grateful to God for congregations that have the kind of foresight that you do to, to, uh, to sort of uh, strengthen, uh, strengthen your pastoral team in, in this particular way. And uh, I have a hunch you're looking forward to him coming back. Uh, maybe after I'm done this morning, you'll really be looking forward to having him coming back. Uh, also, though, to see uh, Keith uh, step in and, and, and sort of stretch into this role, uh, that's great. Um, and uh, I, I'm just grateful to God for the kind of opportunities that uh, you are seizing here uh, in, in this place and in this community. Well, Genesis 49. Let me take you there, and yeah, let me take you there uh, by a bit of a meandering uh, conversation with you, if you will. Have you ever had the experience of walking into a, into a store, maybe walking through a, dis, a store and, and coming upon a kid that's having a meltdown? Yeah, yeah, that's been you. Maybe it was you as a kid. Maybe it's your kid, and you don't even want to put up your hands here today. Now, I kind of err on the side of the parents, like, because I think it's a hard job being a parent. Uh, shaping a child into a responsible adult is not an easy thing. Um, well, potty training. How to ride a bicycle. First three wheels, then two. Self-discipline. How to handle money. How to treat girls with respect. How to think about boys, sexuality, how much time on the internet, how much time on the television, how much time with an iPhone or a cell phone, texting and surfing. Uh, if that's not hard enough, then eventually it's dating or keys to the car. And I just think being a parent is a, is a really hard job, actually. And, and even when one's kids are grown, as ours now are, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of parenting. Those of you who have uh, children and grandchildren will understand that. It doesn't necessarily end when, as soon as they leave your house. It changes. And yet, if one is in a family that is meaningfully connected, then there's a kind of slalom in and out of the lives of your children and your grandchildren. The main character in our Bible study this morning, a parenting, or growing up, let's start with that. Growing up was hard. This guy got mixed messages, mixed messages from his parents, mixed messages about values, mixed messages about ethics that kind of left him confused. There was a huge amount of sibling rivalry in his family and, and the, the wrestling with, uh, with the angel here is only part of the wrestling. There was other wrestling in his life, wrestling with his brother. Uh, he ended up uh, taking up with four women. Uh, it was okay in the day. Uh, so he, was, he had four wives. 
Um, he went on to father 12 boys, and, and each of them had a sister. Like, that's a big family. Now, one sister, Dinah, was the only girl, but so each of them did have a sister, but there were 13 kids in the family that this guy fathered. And there was lots of family conflict. Conflict with the brother, conflict between the wives, conflict between the father and the sons, conflict between the sons themselves, these 12 boys. He played favorites. He went so far as to buy one kid a really cool coat. And, and that coat kind of set the teeth of the other brothers on edge. And so it, it was just a family with a lot of dynamic that was really, really hard to handle. Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he actually repeated. Maybe he repeated the, the problems his father had had in his family before him. Maybe, maybe he went on to make many of the stakes, mistakes his dad had made. In any event, parenting for this dad was hard. Perhaps you could say, however, that his most significant parenting moment occurred in the words he spoke to his 12 sons on his deathbed. I'm talking about Jacob. The patriarch Jacob shows up in the scene in Genesis 25. We're now this morning in Genesis 49, and so almost half of the book of Genesis slaloms in and out of Jacob's life. We meet Jacob at his birth, and already at his birth, we should have some sense. This is going to be a complicated guy. Um, he and his brother, his twin brother, get in a fight inside their mother, in, really inside their birth canal, I suppose, in, as she's giving birth. They have a fight about who's going to be the, the alpha male, who's going to be the prominent one. And, and I'm sure that as the mom is out there squatting under the birthing tree, uh, you know, these two boys are coming out of her and they're fighting already that she probably is thinking to herself, oh boy, these are going to be handfuls, these two. Yeah, and, and, and they were. They were. And it turns out our character, Jacob, is born second. He's grasping his brother's heel as he's being born. He's second, but boy, does he want to be first. His mom named him Jacob. You know what the name Jacob means? Did you talk about that already? means what? Supplanter, schemer, uh, the one who strives to overthrow. What a name. What a handle to give, uh, to give a kid to live with. I don't know what you've named your kids, but supplanter, somehow, that sounds like a life sentence. Maybe. It's, it's maybe not the name you, you want. Are, are any of you named Jacob? I, I should probably ask that here. Okay, there you go. What were you thinking? God bless you. Like, God bless you. Well, sure enough, this Jacob and, and his twin brother, uh, a handful they really were, Esau. They fought over their parents' affection. They fought over food. They fought over the family inheritance. They contested over land and on and on and on. And so Genesis picks up the story of Jacob as he emerges into the world in Genesis 25, follows him through his conflicted and an often tragic life. You know, he thinks he's lost his son. And here in our text today, Genesis 49, we find him an old man now on his deathbed. Have, have you ever been on your deathbed? Well, probably, obviously not, although 
maybe you were, and, and, and then you lived again. I don't exactly know what it was like for you. I've, I've been there a few times, or a number of times, really, as, as a pastor walking alongside people. A deathbed is a reflective place, right? A deathbed is a place with remarkable honesty, remarkable candor. Whatever the, your press releases were throughout your whole life, you now no longer believe them. Like you know yourself as you really are. Now, at your deathbed, you're prepared to say it like you see it. Like you're prepared to call a spade a spade. And, and that's how we find Jacob. He's given up fighting with his brother for supremacy. Uh, he's done with supplanting. The, the balloon that was his ego is out of air. He's done contending. You get the sense that he finally understands that he's, he's now playing to an audience of one. There's only one that matters. And all of that which has been his life, all that he has supplanted, all that he has contended for, all that he has schemed about, he's now playing for an audience of one. And he just gets honest. And the things he says to his boys on his deathbed are amazingly frank. You know the idiom, pull no punches? What does that mean? What does it mean? Frank? not going to withhold anything. I'm going to say it like I see it. And that's what he does. He pulls no punches. He's frank. He's blunt. He's no nonsense. He's direct. Now, he uses a convention of speech that's pretty unfamiliar to us, me at least, probably most of us here in Canada. Uh, it's very much, this convention of speech is very much at home in ancient Near Eastern societies. Not so much for us. Today we simply call it curses and blessings. If you want a more formal theological term, it's the imprecatory motif. You like that? Just kind of rolls off the lips, doesn't it? The imprecatory motif. Curses and blessings will do just fine, and that's how we'll talk about it here this morning. Now, you've obviously been living in the world of Genesis now for weeks, months perhaps. Uh, this means you've already looked at some of the curse and blessing texts. Uh, there's, there's a number of them that are very prominent. We start off in Genesis 3, verse 14, where the serpent gets a curse. Uh, we move on through Genesis 12, uh, 1 and 2 and 3, where God cuts a covenant with Abram. That is, he enters into a formal covenant with him, and he says something like, uh, whoever, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse so, there's a, a, a long history already in Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis 49, of blessing and cursing. Now, the purpose of this, it, it's, it's a bit mystifying until you think about it for just a bit. I want to talk to you about what it actually, how it functions within the book of Genesis. It's pretty straightforward, actually, this curse and blessing convention. There's, there's really two ways to think about it. There's one side of the curse and blessing which is, has a prophetic element. That is, if you keep this covenant, this is what will befall you. So you want that in your future, then do this now. So there is a prophetic element. 
if, if, if you do this, then there will be a curse that results. So if that's what you want, then do that now. But if you really don't want that, do the blessing thing instead, the righteous thing instead, and you'll get the blessing. So it's prophetic in a sense that that's what your future looks like, and yet you get, you, 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 you get this significant sense that you have a significant part to play in whether you get the curse or the blessing. So it's prophetic, but it's not prophetic in the sense that you have nothing to do with it, that it's going to be done to you. It's more about saying, if you live this way, then that's what will happen. If you live that way, then that's what will happen. So that's one dimension of curse and blessing, a prophetic element. The prophetic seems to be the minor note, though, and here's where the, the second part of this goes. For the people of God, the major point of curse and blessing was educational. That is, it was to show that disobedience would be punished and that righteousness would be blessed. If we were to skip over to the New Testament and think about this, we would probably use the word discipleship. There's a kind of discipleship occurring in curse and blessing which says, you want to live a blessed life? Then be righteous. You want to live a cursed life? Then go ahead and do that, but that's what's going to result. Figure out which one you want. So there was this educative or educational dimension to it. And really it was invitational. Uh, you pick. You pick what you want. You decide the kind of outcome you want. That's the outcome. Figure out how you need to live today. So there's these two aspects, I think, to curse and blessing. One is prophetic, and then the other is educational. At the end of his life, this dying patriarch Jacob uses this curse and blessing convention that's much at home in ancient Near Eastern society, and he, it's a way of inviting his 12 sons to a new level of discipleship, if you will, using a New Testament word, or simply to a new level of obedience. There are elements of prophetic in it, but as I'll show later, I think there's also much more that is educational uh, along the way. So let's pick up the threads we find, uh, some of the threads at least, that we find in Genesis 49. We've already had them read to us, and I'm not going to reread all of it, but I will read just a couple of short uh, parts of it here. In verse 1, we find Jacob calling his sons together, gather round, boys, I want to tell you what you can expect in the days to come. So there's the prophetic aspect to this. Come together, listen, sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father, and you've already learned that Israel is the new name for Jacob. Here we find him often still referred to, however, as Jacob. Now, Jacob starts off with Reuben. Now, that's the right place to start because Reuben is the oldest. He's the oldest boy. Starting with Reuben should also have been the easiest According to the laws of primogeniture, uh, Reuben, being the oldest, is in line to receive the entire inheritance. And with the reception or the receiving of the entire inheritance, he has an obligation. He's got to look after his mothers, the four mothers. He's got to look after all his brothers and Dinah. He's got to manage everything. That's what the law of primogeniture is all about. And it should have been slam dunk easy. Dad will die, Reuben the eldest will get it all. Is that what happens? 
Well, according to Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, what does Reuben get? He gets a curse. He gets a curse. Kind of a lump of coal. Not a blessing. I find it interesting that at the head of, uh, of this chapter, in the New International Version, that it's the, the caption that's been inserted into the text is, Jacob blesses his sons. You ask Reuben whether he thinks he's getting a blessing. He doesn't. He gets a curse. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my strength, first proof of my manhood, at the top in honor and at the top in power. But like a bucket of water spilled, you'll be at the top no more. Because you climbed into your father's marriage bed, mounting that couch, and you defiled it. Now, I'm guessing you can pretty much see in your mind eye exactly what's happening there, right? Like, I don't have to paint that picture for you, do I? Wow. Reuben had sex with Billa, one of the four mothers in his family. That incident is recorded in Genesis 35, verse 22. Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Israel, or Jacob, heard of it. Now, that's all the text says. There's a period at the end of the sentence. That's all it says. Is that what you... Do you wonder why that's all the text says? Genesis 35, 22. Do you think it might have said something like, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Jacob heard of it, and Jacob went to Reuben and he said, Reuben, don't do that again. Doesn't say that. Or, or Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Jacob heard of it. And, and he said, Reuben, you crossed the line. You're no longer going to be treated as my eldest son. When it comes time for the law of primogeniture to kick in, it's not going to. All there is in Genesis 35:22 is a period at the end. And Israel heard of it. Period. You get the sense that Jacob did nothing. Now, from the argument of silence, which is always a dangerous place to argue, but that's how I'm approaching this text in this place. It doesn't say he did anything about it. But it does say here in Genesis 49 that he does something. He curses Reuben by stripping him of his rights as firstborn son. You know, you get the bit of the sense from the earlier chapters of Genesis that, that Jacob was a bit of an absent father. Uh, that he wasn't always there for his kids. Uh, I don't know... I don't know how much he kicked the soccer ball with, with the kids after work in the evening. I don't know if, if the family ate meals together much or at all. Um, I don't know if he ever took his, his kids out golfing, whatever golf was in that day. I don't know if he ever had the talk with his boys. Um, I don't know if he ever told them how their body parts worked and and how they needed to treat their own bodies 
respectfully and treat other people, women, respectfully. Um, I don't know if he ever taught his kids how to be godly. Um, maybe you, you get the sense that with 12, 13 kids, uh, maybe there wasn't a lot of one-on-one time. Maybe Jacob said to his wives, uh, girls, that's your job. I, I don't know. Again, argument of silence. Whatever it was, you get the sense that now at the end of his life, Jacob's got some regrets about not being there for his kids. But at the same time, you get the sense that now at the end of his life, he's got absolute clarity about what it really means to be an honorable person or to be an honorable man. He's talking to his boys. And so he says, Reuben, you're not an honorable man. Uh, You're not the kind of man that is a good model for your siblings. You're not the kind of man that is a good model for the watching world. Um, God doesn't want guys going around doing what you did. And to make my point, Reuben, I'm going to forgo the laws of primogeniture. You will be at the top no more. You will excel no longer. You blew it, my son. You get a curse. Whoa. Whoa. Later on in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, we discovered that the rights of the firstborn that should have gone to Reuben are in fact given to another brother. He gets passed over. You know, the next time you or me are about to to sin, we ought to think about the consequences, eh? Like the next time you're about to do something stupid, think about what it could mean. Consequences. Simeon and Levi, the next two boys. I I won't take this long on all of the boys. I'll move quite quickly, actually, through most of them. They don't get a blessing either. Whatever you think about what should be the caption of this title, the first three guys, in fact, don't get a blessing. In fact, Jacob disassociates himself from their hot-headed violence and curses their anger and says they'll be scattered throughout Israel. Judah is the first boy to get a blessing. It's a positive word, verses 8 and 9. In effect, Judah is the guy who gets the, who gets the rights of the firstborn, that his brothers would bow before him. Now, there are so many nuances. If, if you're Old Testament literate, then you can dive in on each of these verses and say, well, that's what that means and that's where that goes. I don't have time for all of that here this morning. I'm going to stay a little above uh, some of the details. Now, can, can you imagine Jake, Jacob laying on his deathbed, uh, singling out his boys, uh, Reuben, curse, Simeon, curse, Levi, curse, Judah, blessing. How hard must that have been to speak these frank pull no punches kind of words to his boys. In fact, by the time you get to verse 18, you realize this is really hard work because what is written there? He takes this pregnant pause and he says, I look for your deliverance, O Lord. It's almost as if he's saying, God, man, God, this this curse and blessing stuff is really, really taking its toll on me. This is hard work. I have five more boys to speak to and I'm not having fun. Uh, can I die before I finish this curse and best blessing speech? Like, get me out of here, God. Take me now. 
Oh, Lord, I look for your deliverance. Well, he finishes off, and, and I will too. Blessing words to Zebulun, verse 13. A mix of blessing and curse to Issachar. Uh, mostly blessing for Dan. Blessing for Gad, for Asher, for Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin. Who's Benjamin? Well, he's the last kid, right? He's the, sort of the, the baby of the family. And, and uh, wow. He's likened to a starving wolf who goes on a killing spree. He really gets a curse. You get the sense that maybe dad wasn't much there at all with this boy. I don't know about you, but I hope that's not the speech I wait to give until my deathbed. That can't have been easy. And in fact, the giving this speech will have taken its toll because by the time we get to verse 33, we read that Jacob finished instructing his sons, pulled his feet into bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Well, what do you make of this story? What do you make of this, this passage? What's in Genesis 49 for Jericho Ridge? Let me end with that in two ways. I see a couple of timeless truths that, in this chapter that are important to us. The first is this. Seeds determine the harvest. Seeds determine the harvest. Proverbs 28 says it this way. The one who plants, uh, 22 verse 8 rather, says that the one who plants wickedness harvests trouble. Yeah, talk to Reuben. See if that's true. Paul in Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 9 says, Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. And generally speaking, that's the way it is. What happens when you put a dandelion seed into the ground? What do you get? What happens when you put a cucumber seed into the ground? If you're a gardener, you get a cucumber. In the same way, righteousness, when you plant righteousness, it leads to blessing. When you plant wickedness, it leads to curse. Now, that's not always the case. And, and there are a couple of, a couple, probably a number of notable instances in the Scripture where, where sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. If you want to do some study afterwards, go look at Psalm 37 and then flip them around like Keith's been doing here this morning, 73. Psalm 37 and 73 are two notable texts where the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper. Well, for the most part, it's not that way. It's the other way around. The righteous live the kinds of lives that leads to a blessing in the prophetic sense, but also because they've made some decisions that are that way. The wicked, on the other hand, are cursed. That's certainly what Reuben, the oldest son, learned. He had sex with one of his mothers, and a curse resulted. I like the way that Pierre Gilbert puts it. Uh, Pierre is an Old Testament theologian uh, within our denomination. He's a professor at one of our seminaries in, in Winnipeg. He writes it this way, God has designed the world in such a way that people's actions contain in themselves the seeds of their consequences. Now you're thinking about that. Let me read it again. 
God has designed the world in such a way that people's actions contain in themselves the seeds of their consequences. What that means is that the thief will be jailed, right? That's typically what happens. That a generous person will be honored. It's typically what happens. A foolish person will experience heartache. A faithful person will experience stability. Not always, but mostly. When we moved to California so that I could continue my studies, uh, there was a lot of violence in our city. And so a Fresno police officer came to do an orientation session for seminary families. And the officer said, I want you to pay attention to three things. Sleep only with your spouse. Don't go to strip clubs. And don't do drugs. He says, if you do those three things, you'll be okay. And Diane and I are okay. Like, we didn't do those three things. The, the, the things we do have a huge bearing on the experiences we have. What did Pierre say? God has designed the world in such a way that people's actions contain in themselves the seeds of their consequences. And the curse and blessing convention of speech within ancient Near Eastern world was intended to drive home that point. Plant the kind of seeds you want to harvest. Jacob was driving home this point as his, he seated on the edge of his bed. I don't know if he's dangling his feet or what he's doing, but as he's talking to his boys, he's driving home this point. Boys, plant the kind of seeds you want to harvest. Now you might say, you know, Jacob, it's a little late to have this talk. The talk you're having now, should have had it 50 years ago, should have had it 100 years ago. Well, that's probably true. But that's the other feature of curses and blessing. They're educative. Curses and blessings are educational. They have value for others, for people who are looking on. You might imagine that there were, well, these boys themselves were married, they had gone on to be fathers. There may have been uh, Jacob's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. There were others looking on. And these curses and blessings were intended to have some kind of impact in their lives in the way they fathered and mothered uh, the next generation. In all likelihood, there were neighbors looking on at the Jacob family or the Israel family, sort of knowing that the end of time was, was there, other families were perhaps looking in the windows in some way. The news reports were going out. Probably they heard how Jacob cursed Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Benjamin. And, and maybe they thought to themselves, wow, that could happen to me. I better have the talk with my kids. I better make sure I could do a good job of raising my children better than Jacob did. That was part of the Curse and Blessing Convention. It was educational to inspire people, generally, the recipient, but generally, people to follow after God. In the last couple of weeks, David Cameron, Prime Minister of uh, England, has been making a major point of the fact that rioters will go to jail. Don't think you can get away with your crime, he says. We will find you. We will incarcerate you. You will be punished. What's his point? He wants to inspire Brits to be law-abiding citizens. 
There's something in the curses and blessings uh, that's similar. Lead a righteous life and be blessed. That's how God has ordained things. That is, if you lead a righteous life that honors Him, if you keep covenant with Him, there will be God's blessing. But if you lead a, a, a lawless and, and loose and licentious life, well, you know what? You're just planting the seeds of a curse. And that's what it will be. You pick, though. You pick. So that's the first principle I see in this text. Plant the kind of seeds you want to harvest. The second is this. Disobedience has a way of severing relationship with parents, with children, with God. Reuben is a prime example of this. He had the future at his fingertips, but he squandered it for sex. By mounting the couch, he thought he would demonstrate that he was powerful, that he, he could, before his father's death already, become the powerful one, that the law of primogeniture could occur early and he would get it all. He would, he would show himself to be more powerful than his father. But by mounting the couch, he ended his relationship with his father. I imagine it changed the way he related to the two brothers who were born to Billa, the two sons, rather, his brothers who were born to Billa. Uh, Dan and Naphtali, I can only imagine they look at him with a jaundiced eye. Like, what did you do to our mother? Disobedience severs relationships with people, with God. No doubt about it that the curses of this chapter are harsh. They're harsh. Why? Why so harsh? Well, a curse was to motivate someone to be done with unrighteous living, to be done with sin, to choose righteous living. It was an invitation really back into a blessed life. Now, I don't know what this means for you this morning. I imagine that as I've been talking here, you've been reflecting on some part of your own life. Perhaps you're mindful of some of the seeds that you've managed to plant in your life, maybe even lately. Perhaps you've realized that you've slipped in a few seeds that, well, they're actually going to produce a pretty nasty harvest if they're allowed to, to live. Some years ago, Steve Berg began teaching a course. Steve was our conference minister until just recently. Steve began teaching a course called Sacred Trust. It's now required of all of our pastors within our denomination. One of Steve's aims in teaching the course was to ensure that pastors would would, would maintain appropriate boundaries for themselves in their relationships with other people, including sexually. And one of the things that Steve did in this course was to ask participants to make a list of all of the things that would in all likelihood occur to them if they found themselves in a situation or with, they made decisions which would show that they were sexually unfaithful. Now, I took the course from Steve a couple of times. Um, it probably sounds interesting. Why would you take it a couple of times? But I'm teaching it now, and so the second time I took it, just to say, I, I, I want to see this again, how this course unfolds. And so when Steve put that question to us, make a list of consequences. Make a list of all of the things that probably will happen to you if you decide to be sexually unfaithful. So I made a list, things like, Loss of marriage, maybe. Loss of job, likely. Loss of face, 
Oh yeah. Loss of income, loss of hope, loss of relationship with family, with church, loss of... You know, that, that gets to be a pretty long list for me. I don't know what the list looks like for you. But it is an educative list, isn't it? If I sin in this way, this is the harsh curse I reap. Disobedience severs one's relationship with people and with God. A curse is intended not only to, in some demonstrative way, be prophetic about the future. It is that. But not only, it's also intended to say to the watching world, you know what, you can come back into relationship. You can come back. A curse is intended to get our attention, to call us to repentance, to call us to obedience and faithful discipleship. If that's you, I invite you to take to heart God's desire for a relationship with you. That's what he wants. The curse for you isn't what he wants. That isn't the gospel that Jared and the worship team have been leading us through. Jared, you can bring your team. I'm almost done. God's gracious, generous offer of grace and forgiveness is for all of us. Repenting of disobedience, failure is not fatal for those who come to God through Christ. It isn't. We are given the opportunity of a new beginning and the restoration of a relationship with God. At the end of his life, Jacob speaks these curses and blessings to his sons. And really, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to a new level of obedience. And God sees fit to include this story in our scriptures as a way of inspiring all of us who come after him to, say, to, to look at ourselves and, and discover that we are invited to live in such a way that the curses aren't repeated, but that the blessings are. You think about that.